Well, Christmas Day has come, come and gone, and the beginning of a new year awaits us. Likewise, we could say the first advent has come, and it is gone. The Messiah has come and lived among us, and he has returned to the eternal glory that he shares with the Father. So now we're left with this question, what now? What now? In light of the first advent and in light of the second advent, what are we as a church to do? Are we to sit back and passively wait for the return of Christ? Are we to sit by idly and wait for the Lord to return? Well, the answer to the question really is a very easy one because it's found in the text that we just read. Until the Lord returns, we are to be the Lord's witnesses. Now, we can expand upon this by going to Matthew chapter 28, and I'll just read it for you, the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Of course, we can go on to Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So, now that the first advent is over, and as we wait the second advent, we have no reason to sit idly by. We have been giving our marching orders, as it were, from the Lord of the church. In fact, we have been given three responsibilities that I've just read to us. The first one is in Acts 1.8, we are to be witnesses. We are to be witnesses. As long as there are people in this world who do not know Christ, as long as there are people around us in our neighborhood, we are to bear witness to the person and the work of Christ. We are to lovingly tell others who Jesus is and why they must come to him in repentance and faith. Then second, uh, Jesus said in Matthew that we are to make disciples of all the nations. Therefore, until uh, there are no more disciples to make, what are we to be doing? We are to be busy making disciples. We have work to do. Thirdly, we are to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Again, as long as there are those who have yet to hear the gospel, we are to be involved at some level providing those who have never heard the gospel the opportunity to hear the gospel. So what does that mean for us as a church? Here's what it means. It means that we know exactly what we are to be doing as we await the second coming of Christ. Now, the assignment that the Lord has given to not just us as Grace Community Church, but to the church is to, is, let me back up, can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's one thing, Acts 1.8. You will be witnesses when? After the Holy Spirit had come upon them. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. So we know what we are to do, and we know how it must be done. So those two things are absolute non-negotiables. We as a church do not have the right to say, you know what, I think I would rather get involved in this. Or I think we ought to get involved in that. No, this is the priority for the church. This is the assignment that God has given to his church. We are to make disciples. We are to be witnesses. We are to proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. But as to the methods, 
or we could say the strategies by which this is carried out, I do believe the New Testament allows us some flexibility. For instance, what, what I mean is as time and technology changes, the church should take full advantage of all legitimate, uh, legitimate means to be witnesses. We should take full advantage of all legitimate means to make disciples and to proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Now, last year, we didn't get to celebrate our first anniversary of moving into this location because that was just a couple weeks after COVID really got cranked up and we had to shut down. But here in just about uh, 13, 14 weeks, it's hard to believe for me, that we, but we will celebrate our second anniversary moving into this location. And I've said this all along, that this is a unique location. Not that there's anything unique so much about the building, but what I mean is it's located, its location is unique because it's located right in the heart of a neighborhood. And you just don't see this very often anymore. I know this kind of used to be the way that they would try and build a church, and with good reason. But nowadays, most churches, they don't want to be in a neighborhood. They, they would rather be out in the suburbs someplace or someplace where they've got plenty of land. And I understand sometimes there's necessary reasons for that. But what better place to have a church located than in the center of a community, to be the heart of a community, to be the hub where people know there's a place where they can go and they can depend upon the people that call that their church home. And because this is a unique location, it presents us with a unique opportunity that also comes with responsibility. And a unique opportunity, I believe, requires us, requires a unique strategy. That's kind of what I'd like to lay out for you this morning, okay? But I do, I do need to back up a little bit and let you in on the genesis of how this all came to be. Uh, some of you may know, or some of you may not know, and some of you may not care, which is fine. Uh, but I, I like to read. I like to read. I especially like to read biographies. And by the way, just as an aside, I would encourage you, number one, to read. Uh, the speed that you read doesn't matter, all right? Just because you can't read as fast as somebody else, so what? The important thing is that you read. And, and I would encourage you to include biographies as part of your reading, particularly biographies of Christian men and women. I gave uh, my daughters and my daughters-in-law, they each got books for me this year, and, and uh, uh, two of the girls got uh, the biographies of uh, Susanna Wesley. I, I love biographies. I think everybody ought to read biographies. Sherry and I were given the biography of Beth Ann Jones, who was the wife of the good doctor, for Christmas, Ben gave me the biography of J.C. Ryle, and that's a, I'm like a pig in slop, man. Give me a biography, and I'm just ready to go, okay? I love to read biographies. You say, well, why do you read, love to read biographies so much? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, I find real life to be far more interesting than fiction, frankly. Now, I do read fiction. You, you guys know that if you've heard me preach any length of time at all. I, I do like to read fiction. I, I probably read in the last couple of weeks, I probably read two or three books of fiction. I like to read fiction, but I prefer biographies because it's real life and it's much more interesting. Second, I read biographies for information. There are so many lessons to be learned from the lives of these godly saints of years gone by, and I really think it's foolish to ignore them. Uh, it's really, if, it, listen, uh, 
I don't, I don't have a hard and fast rule like some people do. Some people say, you know, only read old dead guys. And, and that, that's fine, and, and I understand the reasoning for that. I, I will admit I don't read a lot of contemporary authors. Uh, the living authors that I read would be Ian Murray, uh, John Piper, uh, probably John MacArthur, Alistair Begg. Um, that's probably it when it comes to theological works. I just, you know, I, I, I've just seen too many of these young and up-and-comers crash and burn that I just want to be careful about that. And But I know if I can pick up by Calvin or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Luther or whomever, I know that that has stood the test of time. So I, I read for information. I, there's so many lessons to be learned. But thirdly, and probably most importantly, I've said this before, I read biographies for inspiration. Uh, as I read of how God used these men and women of years gone by, I'm inspired to live in such a way that perhaps God would use me for His glory and honor in just a small portion of the way that He used some of these people in the past. And by the way, if you like, if you want to start reading some biographies or you want to get your hands on some good biographies, Marion has donated several uh, good biographies uh, to the church library. I'm reading the one right now on John Knox. So there's probably, how many is in that series, Marion? Six or seven, maybe something? Might be 10. So they're all back there. They're all good. If, if, if one's not there that you're looking for, it's probably on my desk. But anyway, you have to fight me for it. But, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. Um, uh, or you can go to Banner Truth and uh, get biographies from there. They're always trustworthy, okay? Well, one of my favorite biographies is actually a book of seven biographies. And it's written by Ian Murray. And I would highly recommend it to each one of you. And it's called Seven Leaders. Simple, simple book, simple title, Seven Leaders. And what it is, it, the book contains the biographies of seven godly men, both past and present. There are two, li uh, one living man is still uh, alive that the biography's in there. That would be John MacArthur. But it has, uh, uh, the, most of the other men are from the 18th and 19th century. And believe it or not, I've read and I've studied that book several times. And I've learned so much from the lives of men such as Andrew Bonar and John Elias and Archibald Brown, I like to call Archie, and, uh, and he was a contemporary of Spurgeon, by the way, and of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones and John MacArthur, and there are a couple others that are in there. And I, I really do believe that I've been inspired the most and impacted the most by those men who lived in the 18th and the 19th century. And there's a couple things about them that really has arrested my attention. And the first is the prayer lives of these men. They understood that absolutely nothing happens apart from prayer, and their lives reflected their beliefs, and the churches that they ministered to and served and led uh, reflected that belief. They understood that God has chosen to accomplish His work through the means of prayer, okay? They believed in prayer. They believed that all things were possible through prayer. They believed and practiced the Words of the New England Puritan John Eliot, who said, Prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. I'm not talking about shallow, self centered praying, but the kind of prayers that James describes the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? It accomplishes much. A second thing that really has caught my attention is the effort that these men were willing to expend in order to reach out to their communities. For instance, Andrew Bonar, 
he had already had a successful pastorate of some 18 years in a little idyllic uh, Scottish town, but he just kept feeling this tug of going to Glasgow, a big city, a wicked city. And so after serving 18 years in this idyllic little hamlet, he leaves them and he goes to Glasgow. And he said, his own words, he said that he saw himself as a missionary because he was going to a a place that was rather largely unchurched. In fact, his own words, he said, I would have to dig them out of the alleys. So he understood what the task lay ahead of him was to be. And he said his first need was to learn the language and the habits of the people of God, of the people that God had called him to reach. And he wrote in his diary on his 49th birthday, he said, felt in the evening the most bitter grief over the apathy of the district. That would be his community. They are perishing, and yet they will not consider. I lay awake thinking over it and crying to the Lord in broken groans. See, that's part of his effort. He was so burdened for the lost in his community that he lost sleep and he cried to the Lord in broken groans. And I'm convicted by that. When's the last time that we lost sleep over an unsafe family member or co-worker or the guy that lives next door or the guy that lives across the street? And as I read and I studied the lives of these men, such as Andrew Bonar and Archie Brown, I discovered there were two, two key components that these men utilized in reaching many for Christ. The first one was the way that they used literature. They were very strategic in the use of printed literature. They understood the value of quality, printed, gospel-centered literature. And they made sure that they produced literature that tied the gospel and showed them how the gospel met their needs. And by the way, most of these men ministered in poor communities. Communities where in the wintertime, they would go into the houses and see where the banister had been broken down and used to heat the home. Communities where men would work two and three jobs just to put meager food on the table. They didn't minister to king and queen of England. They were in poor, poor communities. But yet, they got good literature into their hands. Let me give you an example. Archie Brown, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, it was said that his church distributed some 14,000 tracts as well as 16,000 printed sermons. And the tracts that he distributed, they weren't like chick tracts or the God's simple plan of salvation or God has a wonderful plan for your life, something like that. No, they actually, these men would actually produce their own gospel-centered materials, and it would be several pages long. We would think of it like a booklet or a pamphlet. The church would have these printed, and they would go out, and they would distribute these 
into the neighborhood, some 14,000 of them. Think about this, 16,000 of his sermons were reprinted and distributed freely amongst the people. Very few of Archibald Brown's sermons exist today because they weren't recorded for posterity. They They were recorded to be printed and distributed. Think about that, 14,000 tracts, 16,000 sermons, and the church would go out on Sunday afternoons and they would visit 2,900 people. And they weren't just stopping by for a quick chat on the stoop. They would minister to these people. They would pray for these people. They would do whatever they had to do in order to meet the physical needs of these people. This was the kind of involvement they had in their communities. Archibald Brown preached a sermon one time in which he said, love will always find a way to work. And he determined that the consistent distribution of literature was one way that love found to work. So as I said, they were consistent in distributing uh, printed material. You know, one key component of consistency is patience. Sadly, far too many churches, they they have no patience. Of course, that's symptomatic of our society. That's symptomatic of our culture. We want it. When do we want it? We want it yesterday. We don't want to wait. It's it's like the, the child who can't wait for Christmas Day to open their presents. They have to open them Christmas Eve. That's kind of the way many churches operate. They try something for a while, but because they don't get instant gratification, they move on to the next thing. And because they don't get instant gratification with that, they move on to the next thing. And it's just a kind of a vicious cycle. And after a while, people just kind of give up. But in order to be consistent, you must have patience. The Bible tells us that we need to have the patience of a farmer, doesn't it? What does a farmer do? Well, he plants a seed. Then he prays for rain. He prays for sunshine. And then guess what he does? He waits. He waits. He'll fix something around the farm. He'll do what he can do, but he doesn't go out the next day and expect to bring in the harvest. He understands that it's going to take a while. It's going to take, he plants in the spring and harvests in the cool of the fall. See, as a church and as individual Christians, we need to have patience and understand that it may take months, maybe even years, to see the results we're praying to see. Unfortunately, I come out of fundamentalism where everything was about the three Bs, buildings, butts, and bucks. How big is your building? How many do you have in a seat? How big is your offerings? And if you didn't measure up in some way to that, well, you're not doing God's work. Surely you're, you're, you got sin in your life or you're just, maybe you're not called to the ministry or you'll just be just something wrong with you. No patience. I've had people tell me, you know, you're, you're building a church that is growing deep, not necessarily broad. I'll take deep over broad and shallow any day. And the one who told me that is no longer in the ministry. He grew a church 
broadly, quickly, very shallowly. He's not in the ministry today. So we have to be prepared to be patient, to plant the seed, to pray, be patient. And while we're waiting, we need to prepare ourselves for the inevitable harvest. And in order to prepare ourselves for the harvest, we need to apply ourselves to growing in our knowledge of Scripture so that when we are asked to disciple a new believer, we have a firm foundation to work from. That's why we're all about discipleship here. The, the, the goal of discipleship is not for you and a couple of your buddies to disciple one another for the next 25 years. No. No. Be together six months, a year, whatever it takes. But we're, we want to turn you loose. There are other people that need to be discipled. And we trust you. The second factor in these, uh, these men's lives and their churches was their personal involvement in their communities. Now, this is uh, Papa Craig's history lesson here for just a second. In days gone by, particularly in England, uh, churches would be assigned a, a particular geographical area over which they were responsible for. They may have two or three little towns or villages that made up their area. Normally, that area was called a parish. And many times when you read of these men in their churches that they served, you read a lot about their parish ministry. And many of them had thriving parish ministries, but it took a whole lot of work. Uh, There's one man, I'm sorry, I couldn't go back and find the exact quote, but uh, he had a parish of a 1,000. And over the course of a year, he made 1,200 visits to the 1,000 people in his parish. He didn't have a car. He didn't have the Internet. He had boots. And that's what he did. Highly involved in their communities. They understood that they were responsible for those inside the church as well as for those outside of the church. You say, well, how did, they, how did they know what to put in these tracks? How did, they know how, what, how did they know what to write in order to address the needs of the people? Does anybody want to guess? They got out amongst the people. They weren't shooting in the dark thinking, well, I think maybe they need to know this. No, they were in their homes. They got to know them. They understood these people. They knew their needs firsthand, and that's what the needs that they addressed. They made it a point to get to know and understand the communities in which they served. And the only way for us to really understand our community, our parish, if you will, and don't be surprised you hear me say that word a lot from here on out, the only way for us to understand our community is to get involved with the community. And I know everybody gets nervous as soon as the pastor says something like that. Oh, no, I'm not knocking on that stranger's door. No way. Well, that's certainly one way to get to know people. And I want to take the time here to personally and publicly thank Todd because he does go door knocking. How do you think we found out about those six or eight families that had needs that they shared with us? Uh, Todd, did they send you a text? Did they contact you on Facebook? No. No. He actually, he actually talked to them face to face. 
And guess what? They shared their need with him. And I trust that we're all continuing to pray for those needs. And, and, and Todd, you know, put himself out there. As far as I know, looking at Todd, he hasn't lost a limb yet. I don't think he's been shot. I don't even know he's been chased off. See, Our mind always goes to the worst scenario, doesn't it? You know what my worst scenario is? Dogs. Dogs. You know? Every dog is out to bite me. I'm convinced of it. How many times have I been bit in my life? Once. And that was enough. I don't want to do it again. But every dog I see, they're surely going to bite me. That's where our minds work, isn't it? It goes to the worst case. Rather than going to the best case where, hey, someone's going to open the door and they're going to share with me a need that I can pray with them about. So knocking on their neighbor's door, it's not, it's not the only way, but certainly a good way. The point is that these men knew their communities because they got out into their communities. They knew how to reach them because they knew their communities. They knew their needs. And the churches that they led, they were willing to put in the hard work in order to meet the needs of the people. Now, I realize today that the church has the advantage of technology. But we must not think that technology can replace the need for actually getting out into our community or our parish, if you will. Technology can certainly be a supplement to our efforts, and it can be an aid to our efforts. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're producing the Kids of Grace video. Our goal is for those videos to open doors for us, to, to allow us to introduce ourselves to people that perhaps we wouldn't be able to meet. We want to create some kind of name recognition in our neighborhood. Do you realize that my first intended target audience for those videos is this neighborhood? We're not making them for Lexington or Richmond. We're making them for Apple Grove subdivision. So that's a lot of time and effort to put into reaching people. Well, aren't they worth it? And our goal this year is really to accelerate the use of video to help our church and those outside of the church. I'm not sure how many of you know this. I don't mean to embarrass anyone, but Ben and Joey and John are working on bringing theology to the masses, if you will, through, through their Theology for You ministry. If you want to check it out, check out their work. It's at theologyfor4u.com. And I think part of the goal is there, there is to... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's to help bivocational pastors as well. Okay. Um, Todd, Alexandra, write the scripts for the videos. Our second video is done, and perhaps we could publish that today, Joey, so people could share it. Also, in the coming year, Jeff, we discovered, has a, a hidden talent besides frying turkeys. Amen. That's a good one. But... Uh, He's agreed to help us create some videos with practical helps for parents, such as how should your kids act in church and other things that perhaps people who aren't in church yet can benefit from. And, and I, I, I'm going to say this, and, and I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but in order for us to get all this done, we need more of Joey's time. So we're praying, and I want you to pray for this as well, that we can find some funding for Joey to leave Remix. I know that would break his heart, but to leave Remix 
and invest his, all of his time into putting out these videos and doing the work. And listen, if you have some hidden skills, let us know. Let us know. See, getting the gospel to people, listen, I, I understand there are going to be some people who are never going to knock on a stranger's door. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that you can't be involved at some level in reaching people with the gospel. The guy who shoots the video, the guy who edits the video, the guy who sends out the link is doing his part in getting the gospel to other people. Okay. So we're looking for funding for Joey, some rich patron, some kind of funding. Pray about that, would you? But let me say this. We must not rely upon a video or a social media post to do the work that God expects his people to do because people reach people. So let me give you some idea of what I'm thinking for us in the coming year of 2021. What, what is going to be our strategy moving forward? Well, it's really uh, the, the similar strategy that was used in the past that I've been talking about. And that is to begin to consistently distribute quality gospel-oriented printed material throughout our neighborhood in order to create opportunities for us to get to know the needs of the people in our neighborhood. In other words, we're going to concentrate our time, our effort, and our resources on our community, on our neighborhood, on our parish. You say, well, how big is it? Well, you know, if you take out your prayer card, you'll see that there's 15 streets listed there. You think, well, 15 streets? That's not very much. Well, do you realize that those 15 streets contain 368 houses or households, however you want to say it? So let's just do a little quick math here. Let's, let's say if there's only two people in each household. 368 times two, if my calculator didn't fail me, is 736 people who are within walking distance of our front door. So let's say there's three in every house. That would mean that there are 1,104 people within walking distance of our front door. Let's say there are four people in every house. That would mean that there are 1,472 people within walking distance of our front door. That is almost 1,500 people whose souls are going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. And God has placed us within walking distance of them. We live next door. It's our responsibility to reach them. We, you know, listen, I get irritated. I, I, you know, pray for me. I get irritated a lot, but pray for me. I get irritated with the Southlands of the world and the, the what's the other one? Cross something. Crossroads, you know, I, I, the church out of Cincinnati. Don't get me wrong. I, I love most of everything about Cincinnati. and don't like the Reds or the Bengals, but I like Skyline and the Roses. Amen. But, you know, the, the, the church up there in Cincinnati, I can't remember. What's that? Is it Crossroads? Okay. They come down here and they set up these virtual services. How dare you? Who do you think you are? We're just some kind of rubes down here that we can't reach people for God. You've got to come in your high-tech way and put on a very impersonal service. Southland comes to town. They buy out another church. And before you know it, they're bragging about, hey, we've outgrown it. We've got 500 people coming already. And here's my question. 
that's, here's what I want to say. That's 500 people that you sucked out of other churches. You're not helping the kingdom. You're hurting the kingdom. Just because you're cool and your pastor wears skinny jeans and spikes his hair and they got a big band. Uh, you people down there in Richmond and Berea? What if every church would just decide, you know what? There's plenty of people right in my neighborhood. I'm going to focus on reaching them. I'm not going to go down to Richmond and steal from other churches. Do you really think God is pleased when these big boys come to town and suck the life out of other churches? And shame on the people who go there, quite frankly. So you're never going to be invited to speak yourself, and that's okay because I wouldn't go. So just think about that, 1,500 people. So here's what I want to do. I want to purchase about 800 copies of the booklet. Some of you probably have seen it, Ultimate Questions, written by a man named John Blanchard. It's been around for years. It's been highly effective. And I want to distribute that through these, to these 368 houses. Now, here, here's where it's going to be different. I don't necessarily just want to pop it in the mail and say, here you go. There is a method to our madness in having you all send out the Christmas cards. Now, I don't know that, we, that I had enough forethought here, but it'd be wonderful if we could give you, those who sent out the Christmas cards, if we could give you that same list again, and you could say, hi, I'm Karina. Remember, I sent you a Christmas card uh, back at Christmas time from Grace Community Church. I've got something else for you. Now, all of a sudden, it's not some impersonal piece of mail that you're getting. It's, uh, hey, there's somebody that sent me a Christmas card. Now they're sending me this, and that's part of that church up there. You say, well, 1,500, that's a big number for us to reach. Well, okay, let's just break it down. Let's say we're going to give, each one of us are going to take a list of 20. And that's all I want you to concentrate. I want you to concentrate on those 20. And when we have something to send out, we send it out, you, you include a note. And part of that note is, listen, uh, we're going to provide a form for you to ask any questions that you want to ask. It could be something like we did with the Life's Big Questions. We're totally redesigning our website, gearing it towards unbelievers. Now, there'll be a portion there for those who are looking to find out what we're all about. That's all well and good. We're not going to forget them. But, but primarily, we're, we're redesigning our website, and it's really the, the, one of the sections is right on the front page is answering Life's Big Questions. One section I'm really, I'm, re I'm really kind of cranked up about is, are all Christians, and I've got some fancy text there, are all Christians racist? Are all Christians bigots? Are all Christians Republicans? Because that's what they think of us. And I want to deal with those things. I'm not afraid of those questions. I want to deal with those things. Okay. Again, we'll continue to make the Kids of Grace videos as a means of reaching out, communicating with our neighbors. By the way, you got to see the second video. Brooke and Osel again did a great job with it. The writing was great. We will, as circumstances permit, hold some events in order for us to get to know our neighbors and them get to know us. We will look for practical ways to love our neighbor. I don't know if you've seen the little green man out there strapped to the telephone pole. We're not holding him hostage. He just keeps blowing over in the wind. We, have, we really do have a bad problem, people just really flying up and down this road, and there's children that live there and children that live over there, and 
Robbie across the street. He's helped us buy some of this stuff. And we've got the little green man out there with the flag. And we had some signs on the post. And I, either they got stolen or the wind blew them away. I'm not sure what happened there. But we're looking for practical ways to love our neighbors, to commit, to pray for them, to demonstrate by our actions that we're here for the long haul, that we're not a fly-by-night operation. And those really are just some of the things that we have in the work, in the works, excuse me. And I would ask you to begin to pray that God will bless our efforts. And I'll say this again, there will be a level at which everybody can be involved. The goal is the transformation of the neighborhood through the transformation of the individuals. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something, and I don't mean this to be ugly. I don't mean to be kind. I'm just, it's just reality. We, our church is located in an area that is known in Bria for drugs. The police ask us to uh, secure the building back here, as you can see that we did, because they found a man in there that we know from last year at the Room of the Inn who's rather unsavory character, and frankly, a violent character, and he was living back there, unbeknownst to us. So they asked us to secure that, which we did. So the goal is to make this a safe place, a desirable place for people to live and raise their families and bring them to Christ. I don't think those are mutually exclusive goals. I think they work hand in glove. Well, let's finish up this morning by going to Luke chapter 14. And let me read verses 12 through 24 for us. And I'll make some brief observations. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. Of course, uh, this is the Lord talking here, the Lord Jesus. He said also to the man, Luke 14, 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, I don't understand that one at all because you think he'd want to get her out of the kitchen and come to a feast. Amen. But, you know, hey, whatever. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of, these, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So let me give you the basic underlying fact about this passage here. The banquet is a symbol of God's salvation. The banquet is a symbol of God inviting the lost to come and dine. And those who were, who were originally invited represented the nation of Israel. But they foolishly did what? They rejected God's invitation. But God is determined that his house will be full. 
Therefore, he says to his servant, I want you to go back out. And I want you to go to the highways and to the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. Four quick observations. Number one, obvious, the master wants his house to be filled. The master is God the Father. Number two, the master assigned the responsibility of filling the house to his servant. Guess who the servants are? It would be us. Thirdly, the master knew that effort would be required from the servant in order to fill the house. Why? Because those who originally had been invited rejected the invitation. So now he had to go back out and invite others to come. And by the way, when it says highways and hedges, he's not talking about the upper crust of society. It's like Bonar saying he would have to go into the alleys to dig them out. That's what this is talking about here. Number four, the master tells the servant to go get them. In fact, he says to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. I've always wondered, what exactly does it mean, compel them to come in? Are we being called to another crusade where we go out and we force people into the kingdom of God at the tip of a sword? No, it's not what he's saying. The compulsion described here is, as one commentator said, a sweet compulsion of a heart that is persuaded of gospel truth. That's you as a believer. And therefore is persuasive in the way it shares the truth of the gospel. Is persuasive in the way that it shares the truth of the gospel. Not yelling at people on the street corner. Not condemning everyone they meet but persuades them. We are to adorn the gospel. We are to make the gospel look good. We are to make the gospel attractive. And the servant was to go out and find any and all. There was a book years ago. Uh, I'm I could tell you the guy's name. But I can't think of the title of the book. But anyway, he was advocating for churches. The way, If you want to build your church rapidly, here's what you need to do. You need to go out and find people who are all just alike and bring them in and build your church that way. Could there be anything more unbiblical than that? The church is to be Jew and Gentile. It's to be rich and poor, the educated, the uneducated. The servant was got to find any and all. It didn't matter what their character was like. They were invited to the feast. It is our responsibility to at least give them the opportunity to reject the invitation. What they do with the invitations between them and God. But we are at least responsible to give them the opportunity. That's our assignment. That is our responsibility. And by the way, this is the Lord's banquet. The Messiah has come. This is what Jesus was trying to get them to see. The Messiah had come. Salvation was prepared. The feast was ready. All they had to do was show up. But they gave excuse after excuse after excuse. Think of it this way. In our neighborhood, in our parish, we are the banquet hall for our community. And any and all are welcome to the feast.
we must be willing to deal earnestly and seriously with people about their spiritual condition until they come to Christ. Too much, too much evangelism, witnessing is what I call drive-by. We drive by and we take our best shot, and if we put a notch on our gospel gun belt, great. If not, we'll move on to the next. Remember, Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ. This is our parish. We are the banquet hall. The feast has been prepared. It is our responsibility to compel them, to persuade them to come in. And let's not be naive, folks. The church doesn't have, not, I don't necessarily mean our church, but the church at large doesn't, the world doesn't have a high opinion of us. And sometimes, justly so. So it's going to take time to earn their trust, to persuade them, to compel them to come in. We know what we are to do. We know how we are to do it. Now it's up to us to execute the plan. Let me leave you with one final thought from Andrew Bonar. He said, I have come to this again and again these two years, that unless the Lord pour out His Spirit upon the district, nothing will bring them out to hear and attend. And now we hear that this is the very thing which God is doing in the towns of Ireland. Now listen to this. Oh my God, come over to Scotland and help us. Oh my Lord and Savior, do like things among us in this city. And when I read those words, I pulled up my pen and I wrote in the margin of the book, please come to Berea and help us. And would you begin to pray like Andrew Bonar, but begin to pray with me these words of Andrew Bonar. Oh, my God, come over to Berea and help us. Oh, my Lord and Savior, do like things among us in this city.